Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Doman. This is episode 237. 237. We're getting there. 255. We're coming for Al- you. Almost. Almost. We have, so- we have something kind of planned for 255. Yeah, we have we have a lot of like random plans for things. Yeah, like, I think we need you a- know it was funny because I was I was I was thinking a few weeks back I was like, oh man, how cool would it be um, if Parker sent me like the original files for our intro music and I would just make an eight bit version of it and then I was like, wait, no, it's already eight bit. It's already eight bit. <laughs> <laughs> we should do a remix of it though. Yeah, yeah, so that'd be. We fun. have a couple of weeks, or uh, yeah, or half a year. It's like what? Uh, oh, that's a long time away, actually. Now that I'm looking at it, it is what? Um, Many thirteen? No, seventeen episodes away, right? Yeah, so seventeen weeks. Yeah, yeah, it's quite a bit of ways. Is that next year? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know yet. COVID has got me like I just. I, I was thinking about it to, uh, earlier today. I was like, man, it's August. Yeah, it's August. Like, let that sink in. <laughs> You got to remember back in February where we were talking about how COVID was just influencing supply chains for electronics. Yeah. And now we are bunkered in our houses from it. So, and that was only 10, 10 months ago. No, eight months ago. Eight months ago. I've, I'm, it's all running together. Co- you, you got COVID brain. <laughs> yeah. Oh, all right. So, Parker, uh, either your cat is getting ridiculously fat or it's not getting fed. So how are you <laughs> fixing that? Okay, so the Cat Feeder Unreminder, I started designing all the parts and symbols in Eagle. Um, that's about as far I've gotten so far because all these parts I've never used before, so I'm designing them in Eagle right now. Is, is um, it like almost everything new? Besides like resistors and capacitors, yeah, pretty much. Like all ah. the ICs I've never used before. And um, I typically, even if I have like a, let's say a QFN 16, I will generally not use that one for this part. If the, if the manufacturer recommends a certain footprint, I will use their footprint. I don't go, oh yeah, I have a QFN 16 I've used before. I'm like, no, I'm going to use their specification. Okay, so so given that situation, that, that leads to some interesting... Um uh, documentation control. So when you do that, do you name that footprint the part number, or do you, like say it's a TI part? Do you then name it TI QFN sixteen? I name it the part number, and then like underscore the footprint. So when I scroll through the list, I can go the QFNs right there. I don't have to like memorize the part number. But mm-hmm. that way, when I because I have like I probably have like forty different QFN sixteens, for example in my right. library they're all mostly the same but they all are probably slightly i wouldn't be surprised if like 39 of them were interchangeable oh i bet you that you could just interchange all of them if you wanted to right but you know i always go even if it's like the same ti one you know it's like qfn 16 is just a suggestion of what the package is is like like from a, with the jdx standard right and but we know that manufacturers will deviate from it. They don't have to adhere to the JDEX standard where the QFN 16 is. They can always be different. We hate them for it, but they can do it. (laughs) (laughs) They're different just because they want to be. Yes. Um, So yeah, that's what I typically do. I I just 
it's just easier. I don't have to worry about, oh, they slightly changed the, you know, their QFN slightly different in size or whatever, and it's completely borked my board. This way, I just I eliminate that kind of problem. And you know, uh, that, that's always been an interesting concept because I have a particular way that I handle things when I look at my libraries and my PCB software. And, and I've always been the kind of guy where I name things based on its part number such that uh, a unique part number has its own symbol and its own footprint and we're done. Uh, that means more work in terms of, you know, making a lot of things because I don't make like a default SOIC package or footprint or something like that. Uh, you know, I may use a generic one, but but similar to you, if a manufacturer says like, this is SOIC 8, here's the mask pull away, here's all this other stuff, I'll make a custom footprint for that. Uh, and I like doing it that way, but I've certainly worked at places where they're like, "No, don't do, don't ever do that." Like, yeah, that that, that makes our library dirty or or yeah. whatever, you know. I, there's definitely different schools of thoughts. Um, my only takeaway from it is, ever since I started doing it this way, like a decade ago, I've never bought a board and the footprint was wrong. Yeah, because I've always made sure that I've always had parts fit. I've never had a problem with parts not fitting now, and. Um, so it's like it, it clearly that does work. <laughs> you know, at my first job, uh, the engineering manager put uh, an arbitrary rule in place that we all followed. Any new design, you start from scratch. That includes your footprint library. So like, oh, so a per product, every product has its own library of footprints. And you like it doesn't matter if you're using a, uh, a, a processor over you make a new footprint for it, and it's part of that library. That way, if you ever want to look at like what footprints are used in that library, you just open that library, and you know those are the only ones there. Now, there was a little bit of you know cross pollination, like what you do with with you know an 0603 resistor. There's no point in remaking that, right? But anything that that wasn't a passive component that wasn't you know uh, like a regular component, fully made from the ground up. I have seen um, some uh, documents on cha actually changing the 0603. Like, let's say you had a chip component like an 0603, changing the pad size depending on the height of the part. So you get your your fillet angles on the on the solder right. I haven't looked too much. In the, I've just seen that in passing. I've never looked past like seeing that as a as a as a heading basically in probably an article somewhere. I don't know if people actually do that. Uh, it sounds like you're getting pretty anal if you're if you're shaving off thousands of an inch of pads just to I don't know to get. I've seen enough boards under a microscope to to realize that like I don't know the fillet angle is is not something that's like if you get ten boards made by ten different manufacturers you're gonna get ten different fillet angles. Yes, you know from the same board uh, because their process is slightly different. Well, yeah, and it, and when you think about how it's um, you know, it's a stencil that goes across the board that's squeegeed. And so you will have variations, especially, you know, with a squeegee, different pressures across the squeegee, uh, how far it's dragged already or how old the paste is. Even when you're still in the working cycle or lifespan of the of the paste on the machine, it's still like at the very beginning, it's like, you know, it's like soft peanut butter. And towards the end, even though it's still perfectly fine, it starts turning into more like uh, gummy peanut butter. 
Like it's tack- <laughs> t- the tackiness goes up. Yeah. Um, it's still perfectly usable and with well within the uh, lifespan of the of the paste, but it, it it will change how much paste goes through the aperture and gets left on the board. Well, and and then the sensor's got to pull off. Exactly, and and you you remember this from Macrofab. In fact, you implemented some changes on it. Uh, sometimes somebody might forget to pull the paste out of the refrigerator at a particular time. So when you go to run your first board, it's a, a, a few degrees cooler than optimal, right? So yeah. it's it's more of your uh, your thick peanut butter, or it's or it's like ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, we we've had an interesting situation at, at work. It's not an it's not an issue, and in fact, it, this is one of those situations where like we solved it by just like trying it and trying it a few thousand times, and it's like, well, it's okay. So we 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 reprofiled our oven and we completely redid our stencil printer, and like basically we revamped our line. In, in general, what I mean by that is just like maintenance. It wasn't yeah. that it's not that it was bad before, but like we fine tuned everything, and every part solders fantastic. We get some of the most gorgeous solder I've ever seen, except for one part, and it's a one N four one four eight diode that is a small guy. It's like the size of an O four O two. I think it's a SOT five twenty three package. When it goes down on our apertures in our design and when it goes through our reflow oven it slightly tips like it kind of like it doesn't angle uh like rotationally it, it kind of like i don't know what is that in uh tombstoning well no not not tombstone in the long direction in the short direction it kind of like leans over if if you look at under scope it, it, and and boating terms it would be healing over there we go yeah yeah, it it heals over not like violently, but every single one of them does it by a by a, a handful of degrees, and and if you look at it under a scope and apply like IPC knowledge to it, it still passes. It just bothers the hell out of me that they're yeah. not flat. But they're we've done a planer. we've done a few thousand of these, and they're all fine and they all work. It's just it's like gosh, every other solder joint is beautiful. It's just for some reason this particular package, the particular paste we use, and the reflow profile causes them to just just to the side a little bit. So the, this is a I think those packages are the leads are flat with the bottom of the of the of the part. Correct. They're not J lead, right? They're just that's right, completely flat. Yeah. Um. So I've messed with those before and had the same problem, and I fixed it by uh, changing the aperture on our stencil. To be a kind of like a reverse home plate pattern. Yeah, like a flag kind of thing. Yeah. So like the the part of the pad near the part doesn't have any paste. Yeah. And then it angles out at a V. And so the, the at the uh, the part of the pad the farthest away from the part is fully covered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like, like think of like an inverted V basically that right. way. Um, and that works pretty well and keeps it from tilting. But yeah, same. I think those that kind of part just always does that. If you, I think that part down. it has like a it has a slightly rounded fat belly on it underneath, and so like as soon as you give it the ability to kind of like rock and roll, it just picks a direction and leans a little bit. Yep. It's just annoying because in in like a flawless board, you kind of see a little angle, and it's just like ah, this could be better. <laughs> yep. You should give that a shot next time you have a chance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, one in four, one in four, we use hundreds of them every day. Yeah. Uh, so it wouldn't be hard to test something. Yeah. 
but uh that's what, what what i ended up doing on that one product and it seemed to work really well cool so um so what we'll do with the cat feeder unreminder is i'm going to be posting basically screenshots on my packages and stuff i build up build for it and um it's been a while since i've built new parts i think the last time i built parts was for the um the, the pinotaur which was last july not no two julys ago at this point really uh, yeah it was in your basement Ah oh, man, I, uh, I'm surprised that it's been that long since you've done a board. No, I've done boards since then, but I've had parts already designed. Oh, your libraries have already already been yeah. there. Yeah, My, yeah. This is the first time I've had to design new parts since then, which is nice. This is actually what I wanted to do. I'm like, I like building parts. It's fun. I think it's fun. Yeah. And then everyone else looks at you weird, but that's fine. <laughs> I don't know. I like it. It's kind of relaxing. <laughs> um, relaxing is not the term I would use, but... I like it. <laughs> um, especially like the symbols, because like you've seen my symbols. There's a certain way I like to design them. Um, so, I I hate it when symbols have crossed wires. Like bothers the living hell out of me. I yep. will go change a symbol to make sure there's no cross wires, or or like I also like ground and power. I will clump those together where they make sense and put them on one side of the part and put signals on the other side of the part. Like you got to think about the readability of everything. Cause you could just mm -hmm. be an absolute psycho and put pins anywhere and it will work. Right. But like, you got to no. also think like someone might read this. The psychos are the ones that design the symbol exactly like the layout is. Oh God. <laughs> those are the psychos. That's, that's, that's <laughs> awful. Um, that that's like when I first started designing. That's how I did it because I didn't know any better. Sure. And I, the first couple of boards, I'm like, this is awful to read the schematic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I kind of switched. The biggest thing I've started doing was is putting my power pins. So let's say it's a IC like and it's got three point or VCC and and, and VDD um, VSS. I mean, um, I usually will put those at the bottom of the part. Like if you think of a rectangle at the bottom, mainly because, let's say it needs four bypass pins, uh, bypass capacitors, because it has four power pins. That way, when I put on my schematic, I put the four bypass capacitors underneath it, and then I can connect them together really easily at the bottom there, mm. and that doesn't clutter the top of the part, which has all the metadata like the part number and the designator and all that stuff. I tend to like that a lot, so I'm probably gonna keep doing that. Yeah, I, I I'm a big fan of. If a part has a bypass capacitor, then you draw a line from the part to that bypass capacitor. And then when you lay out the board, you lay out that particular bypass cap with that part. I don't like this whole thing. I see it all the time where like on the processor page of a, of a data sheet, you see the processor. And then down in the corner, you see like... 50 bypass caps that just there's 3.3 and ground on the bottom side and it's like yeah it, it makes sense i get it but i also like to see like this one goes to this pin this one goes to that pin yeah. um but it does i understandably it makes the processor actual symbol a little dirtier but that's where you go and you change the symbol such that it doesn't end up looking terrible yeah 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 i i like doing it that way mainly for it's down the road years later you have to debug that board again and you go oh what's this part you know 
Yeah, and and you know where stuff is actually routed, correct? Uh, how it should be routed. Uh, it's just easier documentation. It's funny because I I remember you said you've changed a little bit of your ways uh, in terms of the way you've ground things or 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 show grounds on a board to something that. Uh, you know, I, I was mentioning in the past uh, in terms of readability on schematic, but I've also changed a bit of my ways into the way that you've mentioned. Where like I used to be a stickler, where like you didn't have net names. There wasn't stupid things like a little pin hanging off of a, a schematic, and then a, a, a word, and then it just connected randomly on a schematic. I do that a lot more now. My entire boards are schematics are that though. <laughs> it's, to some degree, I think that is reasonable. Uh, and 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 like okay, so if I say I have a nice analog op amp circuit, there's not going to be any net names anywhere on that. You're going to see every wire that connects to everything. But like, if I have an i i two c bus like SDA and SDL. I don't need to draw wires for those everywhere, everywhere. or SPI. Yeah. Like I, I kind of reserve it to like digital buses. Those can have names. Or if I have say like a 40 pin connector and I know that there's ins and outs on that. And that's just a board to board connector. I might use just net names on that to yeah. distribute everything. But if you have to like look at a circuit and understand what it's doing, as opposed to just like figure out where it's routing, I'm not using names on that. You got to have wires. No, I, I, I agree with that. Like my analog sections are typically, you can see the traces. I still will name the nets though. I still name nets. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, uh, like if you're drawing out a, a op amp and stuff, uh, that's all drawn. Yeah. Well, I guess what I mean by naming nets, like nets still get named. It's just, they're not connected purely by the name. Uh, yeah, I, I get you what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can follow the trace on the screen. Exactly. Where it goes. I yeah. think th I think that's critical for analog circuits. For yes. digital stuff, it makes a lot a lot more sense because it's connected to a lot more things. Yeah. Uh, to just have it connect by name. Yeah. Which kind of good rule of thumb if you're if you're joining up an engineering team, like figure out how the rest of everyone does it and go along with that or recommend a different way that might make things cleaner uh instead of just trying to be the wild card and do it whatever way you like to do it <laughs> i just remember the first time you looked at one of my schematics way back in the day and i i was doing the you would name the net for everything including for everything but that was everything stuff was still connected right like and, but the, maybe like 10 percent. but i didn't have um it's still 10 percent but now now i have a little symbol that shows that that's a ground and i have a little symbol that shows this is a power line hell yeah i mean a one <laughs> you know so i love coloring schematics like i have colors all over my schematics and it helps so much and uh, and and having like default colors that that extend across schematics makes things readable so fast especially in diagnosis like if you got somebody hand you five boards and they're like here do you know figure it out just being able to read a schematic understand where your power is understand where your ground is it makes it so much easier uh so i don't know like the more information you can provide the better in my opinion cool 
So, uh, so last week I was um, talking about a small like side project of um, kind of monitoring and measuring some some tube activity with a with a little board I have called the sixteen in sixteen out. And um, oh, and this is you had the uh, voltage reference too, right? With that with that special voltage reference. So. Uh, I haven't I haven't built that up yet because I've I've actually feature creeped a little bit, but in a in a really good way. Uh, so one of the things that uh, I was looking at is I, so I have to interface between high voltage and let's just say an Arduino. So let's say I have five volts available to me, but I want to be able to read five hundred volts. So I picked up a nice little. Uh, precision voltage divider off of Mauser. Uh, the manufacturer is called Cadock, C A D D O C K. And uh, the part number I got is the 1776-C681, which it's... That's the most freedom I've ever seen in a part number ever. <laughs> yeah, that's just 1770. Nice. <laughs> uh, so this this resistor comes on a ceramic substrate because these are, these are precision resistors that uh, this particular one is a uh, 0.1% absolute tolerance. And then... The tolerance between the internal resistors inside is 0.05%. So it's pretty damn good. Uh, it comes with like a $14 uh, price tag on, on singles, but it handles up to 1200 volts and uh, it allows me to do divisions of 110th, 1100th, 1000th, and I think there's one more beyond that. But I only want to go 1100th because I can take 0 to 500 volts and make that 0 to 5 volts. Um, the cool thing is this is on a ceramic substrate, so it has a really low temperature coefficient. And if you're willing to fork out a bunch more money, you can get these things down to like two PPM. So if you hmm. if you're wanting to measure high voltage down very with something, accurately. yeah, very accurately, but but easily with with like a Arduino or something like that, you can just slap one of these guys on there. And the total resistance of this particular guy is ten meg, so it's not gonna provide a massive load to anything yeah it's a very high impedance yeah really high impedance it you know you, that comes with a little bit of sacrifice and noise but who you know it's not going to be a big deal for what i'm doing uh so so this thing is pretty cool so i can just plug this directly in high voltage in and read zero to five volts out and bob's your uncle on that really easy uh so the original idea i had was reading some voltages off of stuff. So that's, honestly, I've got that solved. That's pretty simple. In fact, with a uh, my 16 in, 16 out, I can get some pretty damn good accuracy, even with the 100 uh, times division. Um, the one thing that I started thinking about is like, okay, well, what if I wanted to measure current with on the high voltage side? And at first, I was like, okay, this should be a pretty simple task. And then I really started digging into it. And, and surprisingly, it, it, it's not that simple. Uh, so I spent a good chunk of the week devising up a couple of solutions I had for how, how do you measure very low currents, and we're just talking DC here, very low currents in a high-voltage situation that is load-sensitive. Um, mm-hmm. So... Here's the the first thing I came up with is like, okay, well, what if we do this with just some resistors, right? Okay, so let's say you do the classic, you have a current sense resistor. Where yeah, a shunt. A shunt, you're trying to measure voltage across it, right? Let's say you're talking about 500 volts, 1 milliamp. Well, 
if you're if if that that high voltage is load uh, dependent, you don't want your current source to be or your current shunt to be really high resistance. Let's just pretend you're going like one ohm or something, which is pretty big for a shunt, right? Well, one ohm, if if you wanted to do like a voltage measurement across that, you'd have to use two of these voltage dividers, one on the top side and one on the bottom side, right? So you would take both of those values and you're dividing by 100. So you're taking a small current shunt, which is producing a really small voltage to read the small current, and then you're dividing that once again down by 100 on both sides to be able to read it. I did some of the calculations to get in the range I'm looking at, which is zero to 200 milliamps in that, in, you know, a one ohm range on the high side. And I'm buried down in the noise. Like even a 16 bit A to D is not going to give me really good resolution. Cause I would love to be able to actually read say hundred microamp to one milliamp uh, current. So doing a resistive divider on a high voltage side, it does work, but it, it, it works a lot better if you can have your current shunt be a high-value resistance and you don't really care that you're dropping some voltage across it. In my case, I don't really want that. So I could probably do it, but my accuracy is going to be pretty garbage. So I started thinking, like, okay, well, how does a multimeter do it, right? Because you can just shove a multimeter into 500 volts. Kids don't do that at home without... <laughs> knowing without what reading doing. the ratings but, on your multimeter <laughs> but you but technically you can do it right and it, and it works right you can just set your multimeter into uh reading current and then you know pass current through it and you can read it well the thing is uh, a multimeter is, is floating reference right so if you're reading five volts across the resistor and the common mode voltage is 500 volts who cares you're reading five volts you're yeah. not reading as long as long as the meter is sufficiently isolated right, right. yeah 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 <laughs> it's it's not just an exposed board touching metal or you right? you that's uh, the main thing to worry about is you <laughs> yeah exactly so the multimeter idea is is novel and unique and it's like okay well the thing that sucks about that is like, okay, so if, say you wanted to measure multiple things at the same time into an Arduino, would you have to like create a bunch of unique multimeter style circuits that all read down to, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. You go to Harbor Freight <laughs> and you get those coupons with a free yeah. multimeter yeah. and now you have all the ones you need. Well, okay. But here's the thing. I want, I want one central microcontroller being able to read multiple voltages and multiple currents all on a high voltage side, right? So you got a, you got a five volt system that needs to be able to read low currents on a 500 volt system side. So I started thinking maybe it's it would be kind of unique and cool to go with an isolation solution. So for basically make a whole bunch of different front ends that all have isolated power supplies and they use isolated uh, digital communication. So I found a handful of chips. In fact, I found one chip. I, sorry, I don't remember the, the name of it right now. And one of the reasons why I don't remember the name is because it's brand new and it's not available anywhere. But uh, I believe it was either Analog Devices or TI makes it. I'm pretty sure it's Analog Devices. It, 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 it's basically a purpose-built uh, chip that does exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, so you apply power to this chip. It has its own isolation gap inside the chip. 
So it sends power across the isolation gap. So it has its own DC DC converter inside. And then it also has an A to D in the chip that you can read back voltage across the isolation barrier. And it's able to read up to like 600 volts or something like that. So huh. you apply 5 volt power to it. It's isolated in its own little area. So you can, uh, you can plug it directly into 500 volts and then read, uh, I think it was SPI data across the isolation barrier back. It's not cheap. It's like 13 bucks for one of these things. Um, but but in terms of like being able to actually read low current at high voltage, this is a pretty novel little chip that does it kind of all in one. Uh, so I was hoping to be able to use something like that because I was reading. It was one of those situations where I found the data sheet and I was reading through it. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is great. This is exactly what I want. And then I go to try to find it and nobody has it anywhere and it's expensive. <laughs> So it's like, God dang it. Like I spent days trying to like figure out a good solution to this and uh, I find one and it's, it's no bueno. So, you know, if anyone has any kind of like cool ideas on how to measure low currents in a high voltage situation without having much of a burden on the circuit, uh, I would love to hear it and, and love to kind of like play around with that. Um, Cause you know, the isolation solution, I could always just make that, I could hack that in, but I would like to mm -hmm. do something a little bit more elegant behind it. Um, especially. You don't like, you don't like the wall of multimeter idea? <laughs> well, there, here's one of the biggest situations. I want it to be bulletproof. So, in other words, like, let's say that my circuit, I turn my circuit off, but yet I still plug it into something high voltage. I want it to be able to survive that. Yeah, yeah. I want it to be able to survive indefinitely in the high voltage situation if it's on or off. Who cares? And that's the one thing that's that actually makes it a little bit difficult because like when when these units are on, a lot of times they're like a lot of these run on a on a trick where you can just apply a Zener diode across um, across two terminals, and you can use like. I, what do they call it? Vampiric power, where you're actually powering your device off of the high voltage line. But that's another thing um, that that I forgot to mention. I don't want to power my device from the high voltage. I purely want to read the high voltage. And so, a lot of situations out there, like if you if you look at high voltage multimeter ICs, a lot of them high voltage to them means like 48 volts, and and it's situations like reading a a um, uh, battery voltage like you have two or you have four 12 volt batteries in in series and you want to measure that whole thing um well you can just power it off of those batteries right so like the high voltage side gets its own power and then the low voltage side you power from whatever you're doing on the i don't want that kind of situation i want to power from the low voltage side and purely read the data and and you know i just haven't really done that much before and I was I'm, I was surprised at actually how difficult or how few options I'm finding on doing that. There's there's a handful of like interesting models that you can look at. Like you can put specific diodes that have a very known leakage current, uh, so they appear as like a really high impedance. But if you just read the current that's flowing through them on a low side, then you can there's a specific curve of the leakage 
current you can kind of glean what the uh what the current you model is. that yeah but like i don't know that seems like a little bit more work than i wanted i like i don't want to be like uh putting lookup tables of diode curves into a processor i'd rather just read a voltage yeah yeah so i don't know uh that w- that was a fun one just because like I don't necessarily have a specific application for this right now. It was more like, oh, I'm reading voltage. What does it take to read current at, in this same situation? I'm like, shit, it's a lot harder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because um, you could do the coil method, but that's typically you need more higher currents than what you're talking about. Well, and I'm talking about pure DC. Uh, so Oh, yeah. No, you can do DC same way. I could, but that's another modeling situation. I'd have to know yeah. what the field is, and I'd have to know what my sensor's field is, you know, things like that. Yeah. And that's just... V is equal to IR is such a nice equation, you know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you're right. I, I looked into that also, but I kind of shot it down pretty quickly. You could just do a current sense coil if you figure that out. There's also ways to do it with a Hall effect sensor. I've seen. In fact, I've seen some people yeah. model the inductance of a resistor with a Hall effect sensor next to it. And you can do that, but I don't like the idea of I have to characterize a component just to read things. Because then, yeah, yeah. Because then, like, how many sources of error am I cooking into my equation by doing that? Because, like, well, in order to characterize something, I'd have to use my meter and my meter's only so good. And then what's the point of having a good solid deck if my meter's probably not that good? So Yeah. The calibration's yeah. paramount. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm excited for mainly for your your testing the voltage, but if you can incorporate the current in there and for your graphs, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And I've I've figured there's with our Slack channel, there's a bunch of really lot smarter people than I on there that have probably done this before. In fact, you know, funny enough, I was talking with somebody on the Slack channel a, a few months ago about doing current sensing in a in a strange situation. We came up with a handful of ideas just like this. Uh, I don't remember if if that actually went anywhere, um, but it was it was fun. Just like I like that co- the the brain exercise of like, okay, if I want to do it, how would I do it? And and my first in, in, inclination is to just go to Mauser and be like, is there a thing that does this? <laughs> right? Like, that yeah. just, like, automatically does it. And the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, because we're using a IC that does current sensing on our 50-volt line for the pinball controller. Yeah. And so, but that's a, I think how that works is it, you basically pass all your current into the chip, it's it's in in line. It has I a think shunt what it, inside. And I think it's a shunt inside with a uh, with a ADC on the on it. And so, actually, no, it's an op amp because you get a voltage out, and so you have to read that voltage. Which which frankly uh, is not particularly. And it, provi- and it provides your isolation barrier. It's not hard to find a, a an IC that does up to say eighty volts or a hundred volts. It's hard yeah. to find one that does five hundred. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A lot less applications. And like I said, this wouldn't be a big issue if, like, I would be happy to use a, cu- a current shunt and just do voltage reading if I was reading things higher than one or two milliamps. Like, if I was mm-hmm. reading 500 volts, you know, half an amp, I mean, that, that'd be a ton of voltage. But still, like, <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, but 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 still, like that would be a lot easier. Uh, mm-hmm. But my accuracy is down in the weeds, and that's where it's t- troublesome. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I've also been working on another project um, for my garage, and so I'm converting. So this is the thing I need to do. I need to convert my normal garage door opener. So it's a, it's a style that you know hangs in the middle of your ceiling in your garage and has a track that connects to the door, pulls it open and closed. Works great. But I need to convert the normal style to what's called a jack shaft style opener. So a jack, a, the jack shaft of a garage door is the little rod that goes above it that's got the spring on it that turns when the it, ha, it rolls up the cable and basically allows you to open and close the uh, garage door without the entire weight of the garage door. It's like the assist. Um, so, first of all, I can just go out and buy a jack shaft garage door opener, but they're like six hundred to seven hundred dollars, and I already have a perfectly good garage door opener. It's just the wrong style. Now, why am I doing this? Yeah, I was about to say, like, what's the need? Why is because um, in like a week or two, I am getting a auto lift for my garage, and so. That opener takes up two feet of vertical space in my garage that a car will hit when I put it on the lift. <laughs> so I need to move it to a jack staff style. This is actually pretty common with people that do automotive work in their at their in their home garage. You need that extra two feet of garage space. You need that extra two feet of garage space so you you get a jack shaft style. Um, but I didn't want to spend you know six hundred seven hundred dollars a new opener, so I'm like, okay, I'll just you know convert it. And uh, so there's a person out there, I'll put a link, that makes a kit that's basically a piece of chain, a cog that goes on your jack shaft, and then you kind of just cobble it together and it fits up there, right? Perfect. Uh, you know, I was, I was thinking that you might just buy uh, like a shaft, some pillow blo- bearings, and a, a, a cog off of McMaster and just weld all that stuff together. So now I looked at doing it all by scratch, way more expensive. Really? Just buying this person's kit. The, the kit was way cheaper than buying everything separate. <laughs> and so I ordered all the parts I needed. Um, and then this last weekend, I took my garage door opener down and was like, ah, crap. Because my opener is a belt style opener. Not a chain drive, so it's a belt. So it's got a big timing belt that basically runs instead of a chain. Well, see, that's where you weld a, a, a sprocket to it, right? Ah, getting to that. <laughs> so um, I have a LiftMaster Formula One is the brand for or the model number for it. But I've taken a lot of these apart and fixed a lot of openers over my life. And they, if they're like a if they're like a LiftMaster, Chamberland, or a Craftsman. They're all owned under the same company, mm. and they all—they just have a different outside box, or they're the same box with just a different logo on it, and so they all use virtually the same thing. They might have a bigger motor, but the dro- how it drives the cog, or in my case, it was the um, the pulley, the tooth pulley. Um, it's all the same, all the same guts inside. It's basically a nylon worm gear with a nylon um, uh, what's a what's the angled. A gear called oh yeah shoot what is that called but they're all the same it's all the same drive no matter if you have a third horsepower or quarter horsepower half horsepower all the same drive now. helical gears a helical gear so it's all the same drive in there so i pulled it out and so i'm showing 
Steven. Oh, nice. So this is what this is what the mech looks like. So there's there's the pulley. You're such a pinball guy. You call it a mech. I call it a mech. Um, so there's the nylon drive gear. So you the big motor hooks up to here with the worm gear. I'll take pictures for the uh, for the uh, well, it, it, blog post. It, it, so, once again, electrical engineers trying to be pretend like we're mechanical. What, what do you think the reason is that it's nylon? Is that for, like, wearing? It's, it's, no, it's to allow it to strip out if something bad happens. Oh, okay. Because you have half a horsepower squishing something. Right. And, and given that the nylon gear is really cheap, and this is a easy to replace. You, you, like, you don't have to really take apart the garage door opener that much to replace this. Yeah, just take that shroud off. Yeah, the shroud, the shroud, which has the uh, the lower sleeve bearing, just unscrews, and then you can just pop a new one back in. Mm. So it's actually um, very simple to fix these things, and um, the uh, but yeah, they all use the same geometry. And so what I first tried to do was okay, what I'll do is I've seen this part before, but it's perfectly usable. The gear is still in really good shape. Um, I'll try to press the pulley off okay <laughs> and that's all i tried to do first tried to press it off could not press it out i tried heating it up with a torch could not get the press out so it's probably it was heated up and the shaft was cryogenically cooled and then friction fitted together and it's they're they are one piece now <laughs> um you know that's how they do uh aircraft landing gear oh is it are they press fitted Heat, uh, yeah, te- yeah, they're they're you know, like you said, they're temperature difference, and then they they press them together, and then they just basically fuse into one. Yeah, and um, so I'm like, okay, I can't get that apart. So I'm like, oh, I can just bring it over. I took it all apart to just the shaft, and the pull and the uh, pulley, tooth pulley, and I'm like, oh, I'll just take us over to my friend's house, and we'll just lave the pulley off, you know, easy, and then we'll just put a new cog on. And so I started looking at, okay, now I need to get the cog. So I can get what size we have to turn that that diameter down to, and to get a cog, it's like twenty two to twenty five bucks plus shipping on McMaster. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, that's not too bad. That's not bad at all. And then I'm like, you know what? I wonder how much it costs just to buy the whole unit with the cog already on it. Eighteen dollars on Amazon. <laughs> so I'll take a picture. Is yeah, they look identical. I didn't accept what the... Oh, the, uh, well, yeah. One, one's the, a belt and one's piece. a cog. Yeah, exactly. And um, I, I haven't installed it yet. I'm going to install it after the podcast. But yes, it's identical. So $18 and zero work versus half a day on a lathe and $25. I guess. Thanks, China. Yeah. So... Um, I actually think whoever the parent company of LiftMaster, Chamberlain, and Craftsman are for garage door openers of making universal parts that work in everything. So I can take a belt drive model part and shove it into my, my uh, no, chain drive model part and shove it into my belt drive uh, unit. Um, and so other things I needed to do this because um, there's some other things if is another person out there that's listening to this that also wants to convert to a jack shaft style garage door opener is you need a way to lock your door, the garage door. Because in the uh, with a typical opener, your your motor is on a worm gear and you can't, you know, you can't force a worm gear backwards. You have to drive with the worm gear. You can't drive the worm gear backwards. And so your door is closed with that gear sets 
So you can't open up your door. Um, but with a jack shaft, you're only locking the jack shaft. And so you can technically, if you are like Hercules, and you can lift the door because you won't have the spring to help you because that's on cable. So the cable goes slack if you try to lift it that way. But, you know, three or four people can easily lift the door and then it's unlocked. And so um, you have to get a like a deadbolt style lock. So I got a electronic one. It's called the Sherlock garage door deadbolt. And basically it like it like it has a little unit that sits on your garage door opener. And then so if it detects vibration, basically the motor's turning, right? It unlocks the lock. Hmm. It's a pretty cool idea doing it that way. I thought I thought you were just gonna do a deadbolt into the uh, the guide rails, like no, that's what it is. It's a deadbolt that goes in the guide rails and it stops the wheels from moving, or one of the wheels from moving, right? Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's how it works. But you needed to have it to automatically open. Mm-hmm. And so you, ha- you have it open by, um, it detects the vibration of the motor turning and then it unlocks. Hmm. Um, and then the other thing you need is uh, because you're now moving your, uh, your, you don't have a, physical you don't have a rigid link this is a good way to put it you don't have a rigid link between your motor and the door anymore because you have this cable is if the door is closing and let's say there's something underneath the door that doesn't trip the the line beam so it's like you know a person standing there or whatever um or like a table or what it doesn't really matter what it is you're gonna get like a torque sensor or something like that (laughs) well no that's what the openers have is they have a torque sensor but because they're rigidly coupled to it with the um with with the motor gear set and the belt that um if it hits something it says oh we have a high torque situation on the motor reverse that doesn't work when it's cabled when when you have a flexible connection because then the cable just goes slack and then all the weight of the door goes onto whatever you're you know whatever it's hitting and so you fix that with a cable tension switch which basically it's a it's just a on off switch that um, is under tension from the cable, and when the cable goes slack, it the switch opens up and it goes okay. I'm the the door is at rest somewhere, so I need to turn off and reverse. Um, Seems like a lot of work. A little bit, but it's way cheaper than buying a a jack shaft. I think I'm only like ninety dollars in all the parts. Hmm. Versus, um, the uh, jack shaft opener is like seven hundred. So. so so okay, here's and the you p- still need like the cable tension switch and stuff with the cable with the with the jack shaft. It, it's the same problem. Well, okay, here's the part that I'm a little bit confused about. I guess so. The problem is you, you need some clearance in in your garage, yeah. right? But will your Oh, okay, but you don't need clearance to get into the garage. You just need clearance once you're in the garage. Once you're in the garage. Got yeah. it. Okay, because I was thinking, like, well, the, I mean, the, the garage door itself hangs lower yeah. than what you're talking about, but it doesn't matter. Well, it the, hang, the garage door is not as low as the opener, but yes, is if you have a car all the way up on the lift, you're not going to be able to open up the garage door. Right, okay. Got it. Which is fine. I don't, um, my, the garage door in my garage is not the main egress. I have a side door. Right. That's the main egress. So, like, you're not locked in when you have a car up on the lift. <laughs> when, so, when does uh, when does your lift arrive? Uh, it's supposed to ship sometime this week, Ooh. and then it's coming from I think Alabama, 
So, whenever it shows up, it, it, is it a kit or is it like fully assembled? It's full. It's fully assembled. Cool. So, so you can just start lifting stuff right when it shows up. Well, yeah, I got I got drill holes in the concrete and stuff and and install it. Oh yeah, yeah. okay. You, like this is legit. I'll probably the first thing I'll do is I'll sit on it and have it lift me up. <laughs> of course, right? Yeah, and then lift. And then you start with the smallest vehicle you have, lift that, and then progress up to the largest vehicle. You know, you got to test it. Right, right. Yeah. Like that big gantry crane I had in the. Uh, um, Oh yeah, the, that warehouse Old I sh- had. Shop. The very first thing I did was I, you know, strapped in myself into the crane and drove her out. <laughs> <laughs> Wear some suspenders and hook it into your back loop. I mean, we, we yeah, we had some we had some nice um, lifting lifting ropes. So just do a bowline on a bite, and then uh, you know, <laughs> strap your legs in and go to town. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So you have anything uh, else, Steve? Oh. I, I I tried out something that I've been wanting to do for a long time. Um, so, in in PCB layout design, there's a, there's some shielding techniques that uh, you can uh, employ that I've done on a handful of boards because just I've been told it's good. Uh, you know, just general practice. I know that it's reasonable to do, but I've never tried the situation of like okay. What what is it like with and without the shielding technique? So basically, what I did was I designed um, with my buddy. We designed a, a full amp on a on a PCB. So everything is all on one board. All of your amplification stages, your power supplies, everything on on one board. So a variety of different signals are all in one location, uh, flowing around. What 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 we did was we designed the entire board and then I created two ground pores. Well, I apologize, not ground pores. I created two copper pores, one on top, one on bottom, that are not connected to anything but each other. Uh, and on a five millimeter grid, I put via stitching across the entire board. So the purpose is to make them equal potential as much as I can everywhere and to cover every open space with some kind of copper. So I took both of these two planes on the top and bottom of the board and I connected them to one pin of a two pin header. And then the other pin of that header, I connected to a mounting bolt that the PCB mounts with to a chassis. So basically if you short that header those two copper planes that are not connected electrically to anything on the board end up being an extension of the chassis itself. So if you think three-dimensionally, like it's like this rectangular chassis has now grown to be the shield also. And that's the whole point. Like not, It's not connected to ground, it's connected to chassis. So uh, currents flow in the ground for all the associated circuitry, but any current that flows into whatever this plane is flows directly to your safety earth on the uh, on the chassis itself because this is a mains connected uh, device. Well, then technically it's coupled to the live line, the right wire. Yeah, yeah. So, so the the whole point of this was like I wanted to see does this actually. Or, or it works. Let's just put it that way. It works, but neutral, how much? Neutral, I mean, it? neutral, not live. Well, neutral in yeah. the box. In the box. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. In the outside my house, <laughs> so it's yes. like way out there. But yeah, 
so the so the the concept was like, okay, how bad is it if I don't short this this shield, and how good is it if I do short this shield out to chassis ground? Or it could be the exact opposite. It could be. You never know. So one thing I can report is that it's noisy as hell, and it's awful, and there's a lot of interference when it's not shorted, which. Okay, great. Like, that makes sense, right? Like, there's nothing surprising there. There was a lot of 60 hertz hum that was coming from all, all the transformers and everything. There was a lot of um, high-frequency buzz. There was plenty of 120 hertz stuff. And I'm not talking about just, like, audibly. Like, if you stick a probe anywhere on the board, you'd get crap. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of that was because my rectifier was spitting stuff everywhere. Uh, actually, I had multiple rectifiers on there because I have multiple um, transformers and voltage rails on this thing. So if you think about it, if you have this sandwich of, of copper that is just not necessarily connected to anything, it's just copper, You, in a, in, a, in a sense, you're capacitively coupling everything to everything, right? Yep. Uh, and depending on how the copper surrounds everything and plays with everything, you have different values of capacitance everywhere. So, like, you just have a mess on your hands. And it's it, it's entirely unpredictable. Which, once again, none of this is surprising. It's just I've never... I've never spent the time actually trying it. And I, now I was like, finally, I'm gonna try this. And so, as soon as you short that... Uh, those copper planes to ground, everything went dead silent. Everything is shielded from everything. And, like, I mean, to the point where... From audio testing, I hear resistor hiss. Like, I hear the the background noise of resistors. It's quiet enough. Like, no 60 hertz hum, no buzz, no hum, no nothing. So it's worthwhile, for sure. Like, um, And as long as you maintain proper clearances to everything, I don't see uh, a huge reason in low-frequency circuitry to do uh, things of this sort. You know, uh, it just... It helps that much, and if you do have a circuit that that isn't, you know, say connected to um, chassis ground, uh, you can still do this as a ground plane as long as you have one connection. It only connects in one place at whatever your main star ground is, which is typically right at your power supply. So you know, it's a it's a solid benefit. Now the the one thing that would be really fun to test again is to do this exact same thing with the exact same circuit but not via stitch the entire thing. So basically have mm. the planes on top and bottom of the board where both of those planes only connect to each other at one point, at one point as opposed to across the entire thing. The, the whole point of like the via stitching was to just provide maximum uh, equipotential across the entire board, right? And uh, so success, there we go. Once again... Both situations, not having it shorted and shorting it out, none of that is surprising. It was just like, it's been years that I've wanted to, like, just prove to myself that it does something. And <laughs> it does something, you know? Yeah. yeah. The, the biggest issue is, like, if, you, if you're planning out a system like this, you have, to, you have to be really careful with how your EDA tool handles that. Especially, like, it works really well the way I did it because I had everything tied to one pin of a header. Uh, but if you want to tie that to ground, well, most EDA tools are going to be like, well, everything now connects to all of these things, you know? Yeah. And that makes it kind of crappy. In fact, you'd have to make base. You have to make two grounds basically, and then stitch them together at that 
that point. Right, right. Two you, different nets. I, I have the, not uh, found a EDA tool that handles shielding at one point well. Yeah, because usually, basically, in EDA tools is if a net, a, a net, you can't have two nets connected. Right. Is is I I haven't seen one yet either that allows you to connect two nets with a virtual net basically. I I've seen one situation work for this. It sucks because it throws a DRC error, but as long as like you know this is the only DRC error, then you're fine. You can. In dip trace, at least, you can create a garbage footprint that is like, say, an 0603 um, resistor where you purposefully overlap the pads. And uh, so it's just a chunk of copper at that point. And, yep. But it considers the two pads as two separate elements and two yeah. separate nets. So it would work, but it would always say like, oh, these two things are touching. And as long as you ignore that. But I hate that. I hate having any yeah. DRC errors. I, that's how I've done it in the past. I've done a, I think I took a 1206 package and then I just, I took a one and I just drew a big piece of copper in between in the footprint. And I'm like, well, that's, that's just how it's going to work. Sure. Yeah. It just, <laughs> it just works. Right. Yeah. So. Cool. Yeah. Just a fun experiment. Yep. So that was the MacFab engineering podcast. We were your hosts, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. <laughs>